I'm going to ask you right away, grab one of those pew Bibles in front of you. We're going to be moving through the book of Philippians as a congregation, almost the whole thing today between the two services. So whatever you feel I left out, make sure you catch the later service on YouTube later this afternoon or sometime this week. You can also now find all of these sermons if you podcast by searching for the podcast Saved. Saved. Just that word. You'll find them out there. They come out sometime in the middle of the week. We're going to begin at chapter 1, verse 12, where Paul describes a little bit of where he is, and it maybe is helpful to remember where Philippi is. Philippi is in part of what's called Macedonia, or if you like the old pronunciations, Macedonia, the land of Alexander the Great, who was son of Philip of Macedon. You might remember also that while Paul and those who were with him were seeking to spread the gospel in Asia Minor, Galatia and Phrygia, Paul has a dream. And there's a man in Macedonia who says, come over, help us. And so they go. And where do they go first? Philippi. And they find right away a woman named Lydia and some others out at a place of prayer by a river. She converts. And just like that, Christianity is underway. But while Paul is going around doing very good work, there is a demonic attack. There is a young woman who is possessed by a demon. And because of this possession, she is able to tell the future. She's also a slave. So her owners are making a great deal of money on her. But she uh, doesn't want Paul to do what he's doing, it would seem. So she follows him around, shouting at him all the time. He finally turns around and casts her out. You would think this would make everybody happy, but it did not. It made her owners very upset. There proceeds to be a little bit of a kerfuffle. And before you know it, Paul is in jail. While he's in jail, he, and I believe off the top of my head is Timothy, are singing. You can imagine they are praying the Psalms, which they have memorized since they pray them every day, like I'm encouraging you to do this year, specifically with Psalm 23 and Psalm 1. There are many more. They're all very, very good. They are praying these Psalms in prison at night, and there's a great earthquake. All the doors of the prison are thrown open, and nobody goes anywhere. They all just stay there. But the jailer doesn't know this. He sees the prison doors open. He's convinced he's lost his job. He's convinced everyone he knows is going to be punished. So he does the honorable thing and prepares to kill himself. I don't know if that's really the honorable thing, but in his culture, that was the honorable thing. But before he can do this, Paul says, wait, wait, wait. We're all here. And before the night is over, not only is this jailer, but his entire household baptized into Christ. Paul leaves the area. There are some Christians who stay behind to help teach them, and he goes on with his journeys. But that is the beginning of the church in Philippi. It is a faithful church. It is a strong church. The letter that Paul writes to them is not to correct them so much as to encourage them and remind them of what they already know, especially as he is already in prison. I shouldn't say already. As he is in prison again somewhere else and may never be able to get back to them. He will talk with language like, I am being poured out as a drink offering. He fully expects his death to come soon. So beginning at verse 12, you'll hear some of that when he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, that is being in jail, has really served to advance the gospel. That is the news that Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen. He's risen. Hallelujah. So. Being in jail has advanced the gospel, verse 13, so that 
it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So this implies, as many scholars will say, this is written from Rome when he is imprisoned in Rome. And the whole imperial guard will be the most elite troops of Caesar himself. And amongst them, the story is going around that we have this hardened criminal, this terrible man who's destroyed and turned upside down the whole world because he thinks some Jew rose from the dead. That's it. That's all he thinks. And everyone knows this. Everyone's hearing this. And for that reason, Paul says, I'm okay with what's happening to me. Verse 14, and most of the brothers, that is the other Christians in Rome, have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, what we can take from this right away is a constant theme in the Bible, that affliction, when it comes upon Christians, always works to better the faith and lives of Christians. When one Christian stands strong, other Christians see that and stand strong as well. United, we are powerful together, but it is hard to be united without some who stand out in front and say, follow me. Like Jesus said to his 12, and like Paul said in the reading we heard a moment ago, join in imitating me. We'll come back to that language of Paul in a moment. But see how then affliction and suffering for the Christian are not a reason for discouragement, but for confidence, especially as you can know that other Christians who see you stand firm will be emboldened by you. Just yesterday, I was able to have a couple conversations at an event somewhere far away. I won't tell you where, but I, was, I ran into three different Christians, three different Christians, none of whom go to church, but they're all Christians. And I was able to simply say to them, God bless you. Keep reading your Bible. Oh, by the way, here's a Sons of Solomon packet. <laughs> yeah? But what is that then? It's encouragement. It's strengthening. It's confidence. And as a congregation like we are, where so many of us do believe the Bible is true and still attend church regularly to sing our praises to Jesus and to eat his marvelous feast, you can know that no matter what other afflictions we face when we bring them here together, they are for our building up and for our encouragement together. He'll continue in verse 19, skip a little down ahead there, where he says that, if you've got the ESV, you'll see the paragraph begins with verse 18, yes, and I will rejoice, verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Please understand he doesn't mean, I know that because you're praying, I'm going to get out of jail. What he means is, I know that because you're praying for me, and because of the fact that the Spirit of Jesus Christ is within me, that my being in jail, even unto my death, will turn out for my salvation on the last day. Paul talks in other places about his awareness that he can fall away, that he can take his hand off the plow. That after running, he can be disqualified from the race. And yet here you see him saying with confidence, he knows the affliction which comes upon him because he's a Christian, because he stands firm on what God has truly said, is there to confirm him in that faith, to strengthen him in his knowledge that this life 
is in fact a passing and fleeting dream, and the life which is to come is the real one. He is certain then that this is not for his ill. I've talked about this often before, how hard it is in a moment when something goes wrong in your life to believe that it is for your good. And you probably remember my favorite example is when I spill that coffee. Here I go. I'm all doing good. I got my coffee. Whoops, there it went. It's on me. It's on that. It's on someone else. And Meredith, does coffee come out easy? No, coffee does not come out easy. So of course, shame, shame on Jonathan in my head. But gradually training my voice to say, hallelujah, the suffering is for my learning. And if nothing else, to provide the opportunity to say, hallelujah, the suffering is for my learning. So that is, again, the main early lesson here, to see that your afflictions are moments where praise can be remembered. You're running along. Everything's great. I forget to be grateful. Something bad happens. I can remember how bad it is and who my God is. Yes? Verse 20, he goes on to say regarding his deliverance, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by my life or by my death. The final words that we're going to look at today will emphasize this even more. And if I can point out the one gleaming flaw in America that has been revealed by the last two years. It is our deep fear of death. Our people, no matter who they are, are so scared of dying. It is downright pathetic. The ancient world understood fully. You will not live forever. And no matter how many mediums, sorcerers, medical people, or pharmaceuticals you go to, good, evil, doesn't matter. You will not live forever. On the day when the gods or gods snip the string, you will die. What Christianity has to offer is something even greater than the idea that I shall die in glory and my name will live on, which is all the pagans really have. We can know that, yea, though I die, yet I will live. Yes, because he is risen. Hallelujah. <laughs> right? So he says in verse 21, and I know you've heard this before, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Notice he doesn't say to live is to go on vacation. He doesn't say to live is to watch more TV. He says to live is Christ. That is when I wake up in the day, I am here to speak of my God to those who do not know of my God. This does not make vacation or entertainment evil by themselves. But what again has been exposed in the last two years is how much those things have come to dominate our lives as Christians so that we've forgotten that we're really not here to stay here. We're here to look forward to when he comes again. And that even then to die is not something to be afraid of, but something that is gain. Now, I am chief of sinners here. I am totally not wanting to die. I am a fearful coward when it comes to the idea of dying early. I really want to live a long, amazing life. I want to see my son's sons, daughters too. I want to see their kids. That's a blessing. There's no, nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is to forget that if that doesn't happen, it's better that way. It's better that way. Why would God take away someone in the midst of their years if they're a Christian? The answer is very simple. Because if they were to remain longer in this wicked world, they would fall away. 
And so rather than fall away, God is going to take you to himself at some point, And that death is gain. Can you say it with me? To die in Christ is gain. Say that. To die in Christ is gain. Very good. Okay, continuing on, verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, right? I, I don't die. That means fruitful labor for me, which can be everything from serving your neighbor at your job to confessing that Christ is alive to your enemy. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell, he says. And here you see how we really aren't equipped to decide the day of our death. We wouldn't really even know what to do. It's too great a knowledge for us. He says in verse 23, I am hard pressed between the two. My desire, this is so weird to us, my desire is to depart. That means to die. My desire is to die and be with Christ for that is far better, he says. But verse 24, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So do you see how to die is better for you? To live here is better for everybody around you who loves you. That's very clear, I think. And that's a good reason to not try to die or to try to stay healthy and live well if you can for the sake of your friends, your neighbors, your family. But never so that you would forget that when you die, you leave a veil of tears and enter into a paradise of rest that is everlasting and will only get better and better. To die is gain in Christ. Let's look at chapter 2 and begin at verse 5 where this same idea is picked up. The idea of sacrifice, the idea of service. He says, have this mind, this way of thinking among yourselves which is yours in Christ. That is, in the words of the scripture, this is always a gift to you in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, as he'll talk about in a moment. It is portrayed for you. It is blazoned for you in a way that can never be forgotten. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, verse six, who? This is Christ. Though he was in the form of God, Remember our talk about Colossians, the incarnation, the fullness of God, the fullness of deity is in Christ. Even though he was that, the incarnate God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, knowing he had all power within himself, he didn't think, oh, this is for me. Thank goodness I'm God. I get to have fun. Instead, verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, verse 8, and being found, uh, the Greek says as a man, not in human form, being found as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Most of us are not going to die on a cross. Most of us are not going to die as a matter of someone else torturing us to death. Most of us will die with some experience of pain. As a pastor, I've been around long enough to know there's a few of you who will drift off in your sleep, but those last 10 years are full of pain before then anyway. So there really is no escaping that. One way or the other, it's going to be a little bit, can I use the word gnarly? It's going to be a little bit uh, uncomfortable. Yes, but have this mind among yourselves. You've been saved in Christ, not for your pleasantries here, but in order to see every moment here, even the pain and the affliction, 
as a reminder of what we have been saved from. You can walk into your tomb knowing you're going to walk out of it again. Yes, even should it be suffering and affliction, which those of you who are younger, I cannot promise you that we will not be tortured in this life. I cannot promise you that you will not face affliction in this life. On my show yesterday, I do this YouTube show Saturday morning. I had a question from somebody who lives in Canada. This person would like to not be inoculated. This person went to their pastor and said, will you sign my religious form? I believe there's abortion involved. I don't want anything to do with it. Now, I'm not going to tell you you have to agree with this person. But if you come to me as your pastor and say, my conscience is bound on this, help me, pastor. I won't say, no, I won't help you. But that's what this pastor said to this person. No, I won't help you. So what this person asked me is, what should I do? And I said, listen, you're a refugee. Now think about that for a minute. There are people in Canada who are refugees right now. They're going to lose their jobs. They're going to lose their homes. They're Christians. They're going to have nowhere to go. We used to think that couldn't happen in the Western world. It's happening right now because of the division over the arguments about all these stories far away. You have your own opinion on that, but just recognize your opinion might end up making you a refugee. And especially as we stand against far more obvious things like, say, the transgender movement, be aware that they will not back off. We're going to talk about enemies of the cross of Christ in a moment. We'll get to that. Be aware. Persecution may come. I can't promise you it won't. If it does, are you going to run away afraid or are you going to say to live is Christ and to die is gain? Yes. And that even death on a cross only shows forth that my Lord has chosen to give me the gift of understanding this life is not all that there is. As I talk about things like that, I should point out for the sake of our local knowledge, I did learn it is about 11% of the Rockford police force who's going to be let go because they will not be inoculated. That means we'll be down about 33 out of 300 cops in our very, very not peaceful city. These things are not going well for anyone anywhere right now. We all have reason, no matter what we think about the facts, to pray to our Lord for mercy upon us as his people. Yes, I hope I can get an, an amen to that. Somebody testify? Amen. Thank you very much. Continuing on then uh, with... Uh, the, the death on a cross, even death on a cross, verse 8, verse 9. Look what is the result of being willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Crown him with many crowns. Why? Because of the crown of thorns that he wore. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Beautiful, famous verses, a song that can be sung. Now, let's continue, though, and see what he does right after this song about the glory of Christ's cross and resurrection for you. He says, therefore, my beloved, in verse 12, as you have always obeyed, that is, listen to the word, put the word into practice, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is one of those passages wherein uh, Lutherans can have a little trouble because it tells us to 
work out our salvation. And we know, of course, we are saved not by works, but by grace. That salvation is something you can't do for yourself if you're drowning in the water and someone dives in to save you and you decide to help them. You will both drown. You understand that, yes? And so obviously salvation is by grace. He's not undoing that here. So what is he saying? He's saying that being saved by grace, standing on the rock that is Christ, you're not a blob. You're not a robot. You're not a person without a will. You're regenerate to see, think, and act clearly, which means you will have to make decisions in your life that impact your life based on your faith. You can't keep your faith on the shelf. And if you try in days like ours, it's only going to get harder and harder to do so. Again, the enemies of the cross of Christ are on the assault. They are not going to slow down. Yes. And so in this, then be prepared to have to work with your faith. Again, I've challenged you this year to read some passages at home, to get into the Psalter, to pick up a proverb every day and make a note on it. That's what he's talking about. When you have that word going in and coming out of you, it's going to do its own work. So you'll find that you have done things before you even realize it because it's your conviction now. It's your belief system now. It's not just a story from far away like all the news. It's in fact the reality of the God who made you, redeemed you, and is making you holy, sanctifying you, setting you apart. Dare I say like a stream by streams of water to confess the name of Jesus into the darkness of this age. From here, we are going to skip ahead to chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Um, just a little bit here. Actually, let's just look at verse 2, where he gives more of a warning. Remember, we're working out our salvation in fear, recognizing that the enemy surrounds us and is wanting to attack us. Here's more language about that enemy. Verse 2 says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. And then he names them. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. This is a very clear reference to circumcision and the Judaizing practice of adding works you must do to your salvation. The appearance of religion that is not really religion. One of the things I've begun doing recently, and I do encourage you to do it as well, is to realize that no one who is not a Christian can go anywhere without it being church for them. When they go out to eat, it's church. When they go to the bank, it's church. When they go watch sports, it's church. It's all a religion for them. And that's what he's getting at here. Watch out, lest their religion become yours. You don't have to turn off the Packers, but you have to realize that those who don't have Christ view the Packers differently than you do. For you, it's just a game. For them, it's an identity. But your identity starts with Christ first, right? So even where you might find that sports team to be someone you associate with, it will never be a replacement for your God. And then again, when it comes the time to make the choice between the two, this is why you want your heart and mind prepared now. When you have to decide, do I go with them and sit among their idols? Or do I stand back because it looks like it's become too evil for me? You want your conscience ready to take a stand. And you don't want anyone to tell you what to do in that moment. You want to be prepared in faith to imitate Christ your Lord with the knowledge of the Holy Spirit in the scriptures given to you directly, yes? And this is why no matter how entertaining I may be when I talk, it will never do you the good that reading the Bible at home is going to do you. And that is why this year I'm giving everything I got 
to trying to convince you, go home, read these passages. What have we looked at today? Philippians 1, 12 to 14. Philippians 1, 19 to 26. Philippians 2, 5 through 16. Read those this week as you try to watch out for the dogs. Pressing on, chapter 3, verse 12, our final section to look at. We're going to read through the end of the chapter. I'm going to read it out and then just touch on a few pieces. He says, not that I have already obtained this or become perfect, right? We're always waiting for Christ, but I press on to make it my own. That is the last day because Christ Jesus has, notice the past tense, made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think in this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Again, just notice an exhortation not to disagree and fight over things that are not actually in the Bible. Only let us hold true to what we have attained, what we know. He is risen. Alleluia. And now our text we heard read, brothers, join in imitating me. When Paul says imitate me, he means as he imitates Christ. In this way, I can say as your pastor, imitate me. Not in what I like to do for fun, but in the fact that, yes, I study the Bible. Yes, I pray the Psalms. Yes, I hope for the last day over this age. You may imitate me as I imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. And keep your eyes then on those who walk according to the example you have in us. I am not the only faithful Christian in this church. You're all faithful Christians. And insofar as you see each other doing what the scripture says, you are to bind together and imitate each other and build each other up, recognizing that outside of us, yes, verse 18, many of whom Paul has often told us and now tells us even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, resurrection, transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Two last things. Who are the enemies? And I'll just close with the resurrection because you got to close with the resurrection. But who are the enemies? Their end is destruction. That's where they're going. Hell. Their God is their belly. This is why I say begin to look at all of the things around you as churches. It doesn't mean you can't walk into them and buy your groceries there. You must buy what you have at the marketplace. But see that others are going there for religious purposes because they worship not Jesus, not God, but their belly. They say, oh, I love God. No, they don't. It's obvious by their actions. They love their belly. They say, oh, there is no God. It doesn't matter. You love your belly. You're worshiping yourself. That is not who we are to be. Yes, and they glory then in their shame. I mentioned how they will not back down. I mentioned how the enemies of Christ aren't going to stop. I don't want to get into a diatribe against Marx or communism or anything like that. 
But what I can tell you is everywhere that people on earth have tried to raise up heaven amongst us, to say we shall create a paradise by this, that, or the other thing, democracy, freedom, whatever, we always instead end up dragging up hell from below. Because man as sinner is set against God. And when he is not regenerate, all he can do is seek to tear God down. Why is it that so many Christians who are faithful Christians don't go to churches today? Why is it that so many other people go and spend all manner of anything on everything except for to consider how they might repent? Why is it that the great movements which are seeking to put things like um, cross-dressing strippers into libraries reading books for little kids, why are they doing that? Because their God is their belly, because their end is destruction, and because they are enemies of Christ. So do not expect them to allow you to sit in a corner and hold your faith. They're not going to. They're not going to leave you alone. You are the stench of death to them. You bring guilt into their conscience simply by being a good person. Hmm? Their minds are set on earthly things. And so again, if you would fight back, it doesn't mean don't go shopping. It doesn't mean stop watching sports. It means set your mind first on heavenly things. Set your mind first on the resurrection and let all these earthly things be the passing sand that they are. They're good for the moment. They're good for the day. When you have your Thanksgiving feast in a couple of weeks, do it with joy. Don't hold back. Don't pinch the pennies. Buy the good stuff. Let oil adorn your crown. Why? Because it's only good for today. And truly, if God is merciful, today will be the last day there ever is. Somebody testify. Amen. He is risen. Alleluia. Amen.